Chapter 9 and the Epilogue of Dead Love Has Chains by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 Conrad went straight to Chapel Street, where he found Sir Michael Thelliston in the den behind the dining-room, a place where he kept his boots and the scanty literature of the establishment. "'Oh, my dear Harling, I was just going to Hertford Street. My dear, dear fellow. I suppose you know why she has done this thing. My dear fellow, I know no more, hardly anything more, than you do yourself. Oh, but you must. She must have been in love with this man.' She would not jilt me a fortnight before our wedding day if there were not some kind of tie between her and this man. She must have been in love with him when they met in Kashmir, and then they lost sight of each other, I suppose. And last Saturday he came back into her life and whistled, as he would have whistled for his dog, and she went after him. She may have cared for him, perhaps, in Kashmir. I was not there with her. My niece told me that Irene was greatly admired. She was not eighteen, just out of the schoolroom but my niece said she was turning heads, and this, this Middlemore was among her admirers. Is that all you can tell me? Yes, that's about all. And her stepmother, does she know no more than this? She knows nothing. She is horribly upset as I am. I was proud of my girl's engagement to you, proud of such a son-in-law. It is a diabolical stroke of fate. I know nothing of this man. He may be the biggest brute in England. Did she write to you? only a line to say that she was to be married this morning at nine o'clock at St. Nectern's to Henry Middlemore. The letter was brought by a messenger after ten o'clock. I went round to the church, but the doors were shut. Well, she has made her choice. I thought she loved me, but it seems I am easily deceived. God knows I loved her. Good-bye, Sir Michael. You have always been kind to me, but you can understand that I shan't care to see anyone belonging to her. No, no, I can easily understand. You have been cruelly wronged. I am ashamed of her. I am deeply distressed. There is a box in her room that is to be sent to you. She has packed all your splendid presents in it. Damn the presents! Do you think I want to see those again? But they must be restored to you. That is unavoidable. The general went with him to the hall door and wrung his hand at parting, and then went sighing back to his den. Fool, fool, he muttered, thirty thousand a year and a man who was her slave. He had found Middlemore's name in the red book. Henry Middlemore, late Grenadier Guards, D.L., J.P., of Danewood Park, York, Clubs, Reform, Turf. Conrad went to St. Nectern's and unearthed the verger to let him see the marriage register. There was the latest entry, the commonplace statement of a commonplace fact. Henry Middlemore, widower, Irene Thelliston, spinster. The witnesses were John Jobling, verger, and Sarah Blake, pew-opener. He went to his club, and he sat in the reading-room all day, behind a newspaper, pretending to read. Anything was better than to go back to Hertford Street, where his mother and Daisy would be watching him and pitying him and thinking about him all day long. He telegraphed to Lady Mary from the club early in the afternoon. Dining at Arthur's may be late. Don't sit up for me. And, having done this, he curled himself up in a big armchair in an obscure corner and pretended to sleep. Men went in and out without noticing him. He did not even attempt to dine. But he had some tea at seven o'clock, and then walked to the station at Charing Cross to see the last of the girl he was to have married. If she was to leave England tonight, it would be by that train, he thought. 
he took a ticket for Dover, for the privilege of being on the platform when the train started, and stood amidst the confusion of anxious passengers and harried porters, waiting for the last look, that look which he swore to himself should be the last. There was the usual crowd for the boat train, and the faces that passed him all seemed to wear the same expression, hurried, eager, and yet with a certain look of pleased anticipation, as if there were something revivifying in the mere fact of leaving one's country. It was always the same look, till he saw her face, and that was different. Her husband was walking close beside her, holding her arm, hurrying her footsteps, talking to her, flushed, eager, exultant, like a man who has just won some great stake, and who can scarcely contain himself for joy. She was dressed in black, an alpaca skirt and coat, a black tuck, rather shabby clothes that she had worn in Ireland. Conrad had never before seen her in black, and the change was startling. She was very pale, and she looked years older. Her face was drawn with mental pain, and her eyes looked straight before her. Conrad had never seen despair in a face till to-night. He took a step forward unconsciously, with outstretched arms, as if to snatch her from her doom. The sudden movement was unseen in the crowd. A porter opened the door of a compartment labeled Engaged, and Middlemore lifted his bride into the carriage. A servant came to the door and handed in traveling bag, rug, and sticks, and then went to the porter to see the luggage bestowed. These two boxes for Dover, those three for Paris. Conrad saw the new boxes, small and neat, which had evidently been bought for the bride. The bride! She who was to have been his bride! who was to have journeyed with him over that joyous route, over the dancing sea, to lands that were lovely and strange. He saw the pale, grief-stricken face till the last moment, till the train moved, and she was gone. Why had she done this thing? What motive could there have been for such a cruel treason if its only issue was despair? By what spell had this man held her? The mystery of it all was maddening. He left the station and walked through the streets like a man in a dream, till he found himself somehow in St. James Park. It was dark by that time, the thin darkness of summer, and the stars were shining. He walked slowly, lost in thought, in despairing wonder. Why had she done this thing? The face he had seen was not the face of a bride, but the face of a victim. So my Jephthah's daughter have looked wantonly sacrificed to a father's irrational vow. He walked by the green park to Hyde Park, and across the sunburnt grass to Kensington Gardens. It was nearly ten o'clock when he found himself at the northwestern extremity of the gardens, facing the railings and watching the traffic in the Bayswater Road, watching with eyes that saw passing wagons and omnibuses, carts and carriages, as strange things, meaningless, a procession of phantoms. He took hold of the railings with his bare hands, clutching the iron bars with strained fingers, as if to bring himself back to conscious life by that painful contact of sharp-edged iron against sensitive flesh. Since he had left the railway station, he had been walking in a semi-conscious state, as he had walked on that long journey from Abington to Pasto. Along what dusty roads, uphill and downhill, across what bleak commons or rolling moorland, he had never known. The same loss of conscious identity had come upon him, or if not the same, something that came too near that perilous state. Memory was shaken. He had lost count of time. Where had he been? What had he been doing since he heard of Irene's marriage? Was it by days, weeks, or months that the interval had to be measured? This means Roehampton, 
he said to himself, frowning. No, I will not go mad. Once is enough. Once for one false woman, for one lovely wicked face, the face that lures to madness or to death. He set himself to count the passing vehicles, standing there for a long time, staring into the road and watching now an omnibus, now a cab, a smart tradesman's cart, a brougham with flashing lamps, and then the rush of a motor, with great flaring eyes like an angry dragon. He looked at them and studied them deliberately and named them to himself. No, I won't go mad. He turned on his heel and walked back to Park Lane. A woman spoke to him in the shadow of the trees. Oh, you poor wretch, he cried, giving her a handful of gold. You never used any man as badly as I have been used, and passed on with quickened pace, so that she could only stand gazing at his receding figure, murmuring thanks that he could not hear. His mother came out of her room as he went upstairs. What, you sat up for me after all, he exclaimed, in spite of my wire. I could not rest till I knew you were at home. My best of mothers, don't worry yourself. I am going to take this business quietly. I am used to it, you see. He kissed her and went up to his own room. His quiet voice and manner gave her some slight comfort, but she lay awake all night with an aching heart. "'wondering what tomorrow would bring of grief or terror. "'Mother and son breakfasted tête-à-tête, "'Daisy having pretended a headache "'as an excuse for keeping out of their way. "'Conrad was perfectly calm, "'with the settled calmness of a man "'who is resolved to bear his burden "'and who is strong enough to bear it. "'My dear mother, you must not be anxious about me,' "'he said, looking up and surprising Lady Mary's watchful eyes "'full of sad solicitude.' I have come to grief for the second time in my life, which seems hard lines considering that I am not thirty, but I am not going to knock under. Indeed, far from knocking under, I am going to make capital out of my misfortune. Those African travels of mine, the Zambezi, Tanganyika, Nyasa, I am going to make that fairy tale a true story. You want to go to Africa? Isn't it better than going back to Roehampton? Oh, my dearest, she cried, bursting into tears. He comforted her with sweet words and even put on an air of gaiety. Why, my dear mother, a couple of years knocking about in Central Africa is no more nowadays than the grand tour was when Lord Chesterfield wrote those wonderful letters of his in the old house hard by. Lady Mary was fain to listen as he reasoned with her, arguing that a blow such as he had suffered was not to be got over by walking about the West End of London or even mooning on the Italian lakes, or hunting in Hampshire. He had to do something that would call upon his thews and sinews and give his brain a holiday. I won't go alone, ma'am, if it would fret you. I know a splendid fellow who would go with me, and who knows the country. I shall have to be pretty artful to prevent his finding out that I don't know it. He went off directly after breakfast to find his friend, and he set about his preparations for the journey with red-hot haste. He contrived to be occupied every day and almost every hour, till that sultry afternoon when he stood with his mother and Daisy Meredith in Southampton docks bidding them good-bye before he and his comrade went on board the African steamer. And then the woman who loved him had to go back to the desolate house in the land of conventionalities, where one day and one year are painfully like every other day and year, and to harden their hearts against the pain of years in which they were not to see him. Years of peril for him— Years of constant anxiety for them. It had to be borne. 
Africa was better than Roehampton. Perils from wild beasts, from climate, from famine, were better than a mind extinguished, a death in life. End of chapter 9 Epilogue Conrad kept his word to his mother, and in the second autumn after the parting at Southampton, he was settled at Cranford, and Daisy Meredith had her first ride after a pack that belonged to her cousin, and in every individual whereof she could take a personal interest. His African wanderings had been marred by few misfortunes. About a fever, a campfire that consumed the travellers' stores and left them in some danger of starvation, had been the worst incidents in travels that had extended from the Zambezi to the Congo. He came back to England in vigorous health, and he bore no outward signs of the disappointment that had changed the current of his life. He took kindly to the humdrum existence of the country squire and rode hard, but not recklessly. He invited his friends to shoot with him over woods that had been carefully preserved during his absence, and he was active and cheerful, if not particularly joyous. The freshness of youth and delight in trivial things had gone from him forever. He read more, and thought more, spending solitary hours in his library. He interested himself in politics. He was a kind and energetic landlord, and built cottages that were ideal in healthfulness and comfort, aided in all his plans by Daisy's knowledge of peasant life, its needs and idiosyncrasies. He looked, and seemed in manner and ideas, ten years older than in the brief summer of Irene's influence. When his mother tried to arouse his ambition— and wanted him to offer himself for his division of the county, he smiled, and begged her to be patient. "'I was seven years at Roehampton,' he said, and she understood the cryptic reply. It would take him long to forget. The cure had only begun in Africa. They would have to be patient and bide their time. Daisy was his right hand in most things on the estate, on the home farm, in the stables and kennels. She had all the instincts of a country-bred girl, though she had languished in a London suburb till her eighteenth year. A daring rider, a fervid lover of the animal creation, ardent in the chase but always sorry for the fox, she was never more charming than at Cranford. And that knack of being never in the way and never out of the way was itself a charm. Lady Mary watched and wondered. Daisy was eight-and-twenty, but quite as pretty at that mature age as she had been at eighteen, prettier, perhaps, by the light of a developed intelligence that gave variety and sparkle to the face. She was not a Romney beauty, or a Raphael beauty, nor had she the sensuous lips and the dreaming violet eyes of a Rossetti beauty, but she was pretty enough to be the sunshine of a good man's home, the smiling welcomer at the end of a day's toil, the sympathizing wife in trouble and in joy. And she had bright and gracious manners that would ensure her popularity as the wife of a public man. Lady Mary thought that, however long the courtship might hang fire, her son would end by discovering that Daisy was something more to him than the adopted sister, the useful friend, the good pal, he affected now to consider her. And as Daisy's father had been obliging enough to die while Conrad was in Africa, there was one obstacle the less to the marriage from a social point of view. Of course, Daisy's mother was a difficulty. But that poor lady, having failed as a singing mistress, as a milliner, as a typewriter, as a crystal gazer, and as a manicurist, would be amenable to reason and could be pensioned and relegated to a modest villa at Hastings or Ride. Conrad never uttered the name of his lost love after his return from Africa. But he could not hope to go through life without hearing of her, since Mr. Middlemore had crowned himself with glory by winning the derby with Yorkshire Tyke, a horse of his own breeding. After an Indian honeymoon, he had settled down in Yorkshire with his beautiful wife, 
who shone as a star in a society made up of landowners in the neighborhood, soldiers from York, and the men who came from afar for the big shoots. People talked of her as lovely, but with cold and unattractive manners. As a personality, the jovial Middlemore was preferred to his beautiful wife. They came to London for a short time in the season, but had no London house. They stayed at one of the smart hotels, and spent the greater part of their time at suburban race meetings and fashionable cricket or polo matches. End of Epilogue The End of Dead Love Has Chains by Mary Elizabeth Braddon Recorded by Celine Major.